Hello and welcome to another episode of My Soccer Story. My name is Joshua Doran. Thanks for joining me as I talk to people from across the world of soccer to learn about their journey and what the sport means to them. My guest today is broadcaster Mike Watts. Mike started calling professional soccer games about a decade ago and is one of the main play-by-play announcers for the NWSL and USL. A conversation covered everything from the start of his soccer broadcasting career to how he navigates calling so many different events across multiple sports at the same time and the ways he has seen soccer grow in the U.S. during his broadcasting career. The interview was recorded a few weeks ago, so if it sounds like some of the games we discuss just happened, that's because they had. Sit back, relax, and listen as Mike Watts shares his soccer story. Joining me today is broadcaster Mike Watts. Mike, thank you so much for taking some time to share your soccer story. No, it's a cool project, Joshua. Uh, Really pleased uh, to be invited. Thanks, and I am very excited. This is going to be, I was telling you, a little bit of a new experience. First non-player on here, so I'm really excited to kind of dive into that part of the sport. The first question I always like to ask is just simply, where did your soccer story begin? And I feel like your answer might be, a little bit different. So where did you kind of first get connected to the sport? Yeah, it's going to be a lot different than most because I, I jumped right into a, a pretty competitive team off the jump. So uh, didn't play at all. I mean, like played for orange slices when I was probably five or six, but like there was no, there was no intent on making that like a, like a career or being all that connected to the sport. And the reality was, you know, when I was growing up in Ohio, it, you know, it's more of a pro sports state. The crew hadn't really, they hadn't been saved yet. So it was sort of a, a niche that was two and a half hours away from where I grew up in Cleveland, as opposed to something that sort of gripped the entire state. So um, the reality was I was a baseball, football, basketball guy, because that's what people, you know, cared about in, in Cleveland and a mediocre athlete as well. So Um, my, my high school soccer team, you know, I had just gotten into trying to announce some games in high school and we were streaming some things and, uh, they were number one in the country as a, as a high school team. And it just felt wrong that we were doing the football team, um, and doing the basketball team and the baseball team, but our best team wasn't getting any coverage at all. So I jumped in with the San Ignatius soccer team in high school and and so sort of fell in love with the sport because the people that I worked with were so involved in the sport. So, you know, credit always kind of goes back to, to Mike McLaughlin and, and there were a bunch of guys on that team um, that haven't necessarily done this professionally, but, you know, Greg and Cody and Yanni and Phil and uh, Ryan and Luke and, uh, right down the, the list of people that were in my class that sort of welcomed me in in a way they didn't have to. And by doing that, um, you know, really changed my my perception of the sport. And I just started jumping into it, you know, full in. What was that part of it like for you when you decide this team needs coverage? I'm going to help make that happen. And all of a sudden you're now broadcasting this sport that, as you mentioned, you I'm sure you were familiar with, but you didn't exactly grow up on. What was the beginning of that like as you started becoming a soccer broadcaster? Yeah, I mean, step one is like, can someone explain offside? Like the (laughs) the funny thing about the Ted Lasso experience was I was probably, 
you know, the guy that, that best exemplified that in terms of like the, the current announcers of the sport in this country. I don't know that anyone um, started calling games with, with so little knowledge of it. But the thing is, you know, when so many of your friends are involved in it and then you're, you know, the, the coach, uh, the entire coaching staff there, um, you know, really tried to, to bring us in to the fold because I think we all sort of recognize that, um, you know, it's high school and, uh, you know, the, the level of broadcast probably wasn't great, but, you know, we were trying to help them and they tried to help us. And it was, you know, really sort of symbiotic relationship that, that we sort of set up with them. So they just sort of tried to better teach me the game. Um, you know, I got a stat sheet for the first time and I go, wow, that's how many feet out someone scored a goal. And this coach looks at me and goes, no, that, that's how you denote minute. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like 17 or 16 and, and like coming along on this, you know, for the first time and, and having my high school biology teacher explain this to me. Um, but, you know, you know, Mike McLaughlin, Joe Papelka and Jim Brennan, like they, they didn't have to, they didn't have to take me in like that. So yeah, it was like literal square one and no knowledge of the sport at all. And I just sort of gradually kept building up with them. So that by the time I got to Fordham for, for college, like I knew the game well enough and no one else wanted to do it. So then I jumped into that before anyone else, um, you know, really was able to grab hold of it. And that led to other things and so on. So um, nah, it's a lot of people being very graceful about an utter lack of knowledge of their sport. Speaking of Fordham, the one thing, if I did my research correctly, you actually have a business degree. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah, how I did, was. <laughs> how, how did that come about? And di did you enter thinking, I want to go the broadcasting route or or what was kind of the college experience like for you? Yeah, I did. But I also recognized that it's a really competitive field. And that's kind of the thing I tell every young announcer is, is I caught so many breaks that like my road is impossible to recreate, not because I'm um, egotistical necessarily about it, but recognizing that like a lot of things had to fall in the line a certain way for me to get the opportunities to keep going at this, as opposed to a finance degree where, you know, hundreds of thousands of people work in that industry all the time. So um, I'm not going to lie to you and Sav and thought, you know, maybe going back and getting an MBA and calling it a career isn't something that crosses my mind from time to time. Um, it would certainly be a, a simpler, simpler route at this point. So the thoughts crossed my mind, but the reality is, you know, in talking to my parents, when I was first saying, okay, I actually want to do this. It was, Hey, what happens if this doesn't work out? And they were trying to look out for me as opposed to saying you can't do it. It's, hey, you know, what if it just doesn't happen? At the end of the day, it's like a performance art and it's subjective. And, you know, rightfully so. A lot of people probably don't care for the way I call a game. So you have to be ready for the fact that, you know, I may have gotten out of school and there was just nothing out there. So I was ready for that outcome. But, um, yeah, I, I interned in finance. I interned in sports. I took finance classes and I basically worked at WFUV, you know, day, night, weekend, constantly in college. So I was kind of like getting a major in both, but walked out with a degree in one.
Got you. Yeah. And I feel like it's, especially in this profession, the, the real degree is the experience anyway, right? Whether you actually mm-hmm. have something on paper or not. So you were, I like the way you put that. You're kind of getting both, which is a very wise thing. As you're kind of going along in this broadcasting journey and trying to get to a professional career before it gets to where you are now, how did your relationship with the sport of soccer evolve? Once you started calling and you said you got opportunities at Fordham because you had the experience in high school, were you trying to then start watching more of the the sport, trying to pick more things up? Do you have kind of first memories of you just being a fan of the sport or was it more still, this is just, you know, a job trying to get to where I want to be trying to just be professional with it? Yeah. Like it's a little bit of both. Right. I mean, my older brother, you know, loved um, Didier Drogba and Chelsea. So like I sort of followed him down that path a little bit. So, you know, a core college memory was, you know, seeing Drogba win the Champions League final. And I remember where I was for that. Um, I was actually at a frat house for that, believe it or not. Um, and, and it wasn't at Fordham. It was someone else's frat house. Um, so, you know, FUV, it was cool that they had access credentials for every team in the New York area. So I got assigned New York Red Bulls. I was going to 10 or 15 Red Bull games a year and sitting the press row there and God bless them if they don't change it because the seats would probably be pretty valuable. Press row there is second row off the field. And I was sitting two rows up as a soccer novice watching Thierry Henry at at Red Bull. I'm watching Tim Cahill and uh, Rafa Marquez and, you know, a lot of the sort of MLS guys that you know, whether it be, you know, I, I would guess Kleschen came right after that. And I was already sort of around the league, but, um, you know, Dax McCarty and, and Luis Robles. And I mean, guys that really left the mark at, at Red Bull and left the mark, you know, winning the supporter shield at, at Red Bull. So I, I almost got my fill because I was somehow getting paid to go access the locker room and sit two rows off the field um, at MLS games when I was like 19 years old. Um, so that, that was, that was sort of like what sort of drew me in, in terms of doing this for a career. That was sort of like, Whoa, okay. Um, and I've basically worked in the sport doing, you know, 150 or 200 games a year for, for eight years. So it's almost like I'm fully invested in the in, in the leagues that I cover, but like I don't really have that much time to watch as a fan. So, you know, we're recording this, you know, within a week of the Champions League final in in Europe. I just called the CONCACAF Champions League final in the US. So like, you know, I, I watched both, but it's a different experience. You know, the leagues that I cover where I kind of go, okay, I know everybody. And then, you know, watching, you know, Inter and Man City is totally different because I almost feel detached from that. And I can almost be a fan of that. Um, But like, I don't have time to sit every Saturday morning and watch the Premier League or watch Bundesliga or watch La Liga. Like, you know, the way my time works doing seven games a week, I I just don't get that luxury because I need to watch the games that I directly affect. So it's kind of fun being a fan of everything over there, but it's hard to stay all in on it when you're in, you know, five leagues at once as it is. I 
definitely empathize with that part of it. Yeah, there's just too much to keep it all keep it all straight, right. especially when you're trying to focus on yeah one thing in particular. You you mentioned kind of getting integrated with the Red Bulls, getting a taste of MLS. Was there a point or a moment you can think back to where you started thinking maybe I want to do soccer specifically, or was it just kind of a situation where those were the opportunities that presented themselves and you just kept jumping at them? Yeah, it's it's both. And anyone who says they don't have a favorite child is lying as a parent. And every announcer that says they don't have a favorite sport to cover is probably lying. But it doesn't mean it isn't like your children. You love them all. You may just, you know, at different times, like a different one, more or less or whatever. Um, and I'm not a parent yet. So maybe I'm going to find out that I, I am wrong about that. But I've got a distinct feeling um, as one of five kids. What I what I would say is soccer has this beautiful, unique sort of symphonic feel to it when it's played at a high level where you can just sort of melt into a game and sort of feel the game in a way where other sports with a shot clock or a play clock don't really give you that luxury where it can just sort of be this symphonic tilt. So I, I remember at Red Bull saying, I'm going to announce these, these games at some point. I will be calling these games at some point. I, I had a distinct feeling of that. And with NYCFC, I, I got that opportunity um, in MLS. And with USL, gotten a chance to be the league voice, um, you know, for eight years. So, you know, that was accomplished to an extent. Um, but I also sort of remember going, you know, while I want to do other sports, there's this really awesome pendulum kind of field of calling a soccer match that I can't really replace anywhere else. So I always knew it'd be part of it. And then the opportunities really started flowing from this sport. So that certainly helped. But like, I don't ever see myself being fully extricated from doing soccer, no matter what I go on to do in, in my career. Like it has gripped me in that way. That's, that's awesome to hear. And you mentioned kind of trying to be so locked into the leagues that you're covering, which makes complete sense. And obviously is part of your job. One of the things that just amazes me about you in particular is the ability to go between, for example, USL and NWSL. So I just wanted to ask, what does preparation for you look like? And I know every, you know, play-by-play yeah. -play person, every color person does a little bit differently, but what does that look like? And what are the challenges that get presented when you're not trying to cover or, you know, keep tabs on say 12 teams, we're talking 30 plus two different leagues, you know, plus everything else you're doing on top of that. I just feel like you don't get enough credit for the difficulty of that part of it. So just what is your preparation process when you have a game, uh, you know, a, a week with three, four or five plus games? Yeah, no. And, and appreciate the kind words with that. I mean, it, it, it kind of means there's no days off from, you know, let's call it the beginning of March until, you know, mid November. I mean, that's sort of the reality of it. So I, I just finished up champions league that means you have to keep your eye on league MX and MLS um, and the other leagues that are involved in the earlier stages of that competition obviously ended with just the two leagues represented in the semis. 
Um, I'm going into Nations League finals. There's four more teams. I'm doing the Gold Cup. There's another 15 or so teams that I'll cover in some capacity. And then there's, yeah, these two leagues that I'm covering simultaneously throughout the whole year where, you know, I, I had a GM tell me, hey, we, we had a game and a conference call with one of our announcers, and he didn't know about this seismic trade that had been made. Well, the expectation, you know, a lot of my stuff is looking at the past and trying to navigate that forward. I don't I don't know that I would have been fully up to date on that either, because there were, you know, 36 teams ongoing at the same time. And I catch up as I go game to game as much as I do league wide. I try and do both. But like that stuff can slip under the radar for a day. And all of a sudden you're, you're talking to a coach and it's expected that you're fully aware of that two days before a game, but you might have two more games before you get to that game. So you're trying to balance both. And that's, that's sort of the tough part in, in terms of prepping for a team I've seen before, maybe I've saw them a month or a month and a half ago. Um, I'll try and catch up on recent results, be it highlights. Um, just watching the open to a broadcast can give you an idea of what the predetermined, I want to say narrative was, but the storylines coming into a game. Someone just came back. Uh, someone's offense has been good. Someone's offense has been poor. Um, you can get an idea of, of what the pre-existing storyline is around a team, and then you sort of dig into your own research on it. By having already done a team, I don't need to know where – a certain player last played or when they were transferred to a team or where they played in college. Like a lot of that stuff is, is done and can be carried over as opposed to the form right now, which is stuff you have to properly go seek out. So I'll usually talk, um, especially with the PR people that I know better. I'll have extended chats with them, like John Horlander at FC Cincinnati or Haley Simpson at, at Louisville. Like they can probably expect a good 30 minute phone call with me the week of a game. Um, I'll chat to the coaches involved on both sides, hopefully, usually at least one, and get a feel for what the tactics are and how they feel about a guy's, you know, current performance or or, you know, just trying to get a feel for how they're feeling about, you know, where the team's at and try and find some anecdotal stuff. Um, you know, Danny Cruz talking about being in the youth national team, the Louisville coach with Tab Ramos, who's now the coach at Hartford. Um, and, you know, like there's a connection there and you're trying to find those connections and excavate those relationships um, cause I think people care about that. And I think it, it humanizes people that they're not just a coach or they're not just a player, they're a human being. And, and if I can effectively do that, hit the highlights and make my analyst, you know, perform at their best. Usually I walk away going, I, I feel like I did a pretty good job today. It doesn't have to be perfect, but that all comes through preparation and whether it be with an analyst and finding what they want to hit or being properly prepared for how a team's going to play or trying to excavate those nuggets or facts or, you know, relationships that the players and coaches have, you know, that's the nature of it. So, you know, at minimum new team, you're going to spend five, six, seven hours preparing for them. A team you've had before, 
recently, maybe it's only a couple of hours, but when you do seven games a week, you know, like I've got nine games in four days coming up at the end of the week. That doesn't mean I get Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday off. It means I'm working Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday to be ready to do 20 hours of commentary at the end of the week. And for every hour that you do, you're probably going to do an hour and a half to three hours of preparation to get there and do it right. Do you have a, a favorite coach interaction or story specifically from the pregame or, you know, kind of your introductory interview pregame chat? Cause I feel like that's a, a foundational part of yeah. being well prepared that people who aren't in this business don't necessarily understand because it'll just be casually mentioned of, you know, talking to coach this week, I learned X, Y, Z. Do you have kind of just a, a standout moment or something that you, you take away or a, how valuable do you feel like those conversations are? It, it's enormous. And I think the coaches that, that ultimately are viewed most favorably are the ones who understand that, that relationship is one that can be mutually beneficial where helping us understand your game plan doesn't have to be giving your game plan to somebody else. It can be allowing us to better assess whether or not you've achieved what you came here to do. And when you do that, not only are you letting us behind the curtain, you're letting fans behind the curtain in a way that honestly, if it doesn't work out, but you understand what they were trying to do makes it a lot easier to sort of say, hey, there was a a really good plan that just hasn't been executed properly. Um, Or you can see the change and go, okay, they've adjusted because it wasn't working the way they thought it was going to during the week. So those kinds of things can help humanize a coach, can help, you know, better help us understand what they're attempting to do and give them the proper credit for it. Um, you know, at the end of the day, like we're all trying to grow the game. And as long as we walk in with that basic tenant, I think it can, you know, it doesn't have to be a hugely negative relationship between broadcast or media and players and coaches. And it doesn't mean we are always going to say everything smells great because sometimes it doesn't. Um, but as long as it's kind of understood on both sides that there's no malice or ill will, that's something we've lost, I think, in sports media and hot take culture and, you know, being being the first to something is you forget the damage that, that it leaves in its wake that can be maybe unintended, um, but it, it doesn't make it necessarily okay. All that said, you know, I, I appreciate coaches that can be um, self – self-aware Danny Cruz at Louisville has trusted me in a way that, that I really appreciate. And at times you'll say, I got that wrong. And it, it really affected me. I thought, you know, I thought I had the right message, the right plan. And I talked about that during the final last year in part because, um, you don't, you don't hear that much. You don't hear a coach willing to say this one's on me in such a significant moment or occasion and understanding how that affected them for the better part of a year. Freya Coombe at Angel City talking about the pressure that they were under. I didn't fully appreciate it until I saw the documentary that came out 
on HBO Max. And then I went, oh, now I, what she said, I just didn't read between the lines enough. The pressure that they were under to get results year one with the crowds they had and the excitement about the club. So like anyone who's sort of willing to open themselves up to me in that way, have my undying gratitude. Cause like, that's, that's the human element of this sport that we don't get exposed to. Um, I will say best moments having a coach and I'm not going to out them in the last month or maybe, yeah, last month I, I've done this word sneak thing on social with fans, a coach asking me to sneak a word and then sending me a message after with the minute that I use the word and saying, great job on that. Like that, that was pretty cool. Like to, to know that, you know, someone sort of paying that close attention uh, that's in the league like that, that stuff is really cool. Um, I, I had a player at Arkansas that has since graduated recite a line from the open from their last championship game in the sec that I had said, and you know, how that, how that like affected her family, like how they heard that line and like stuff like that is kind of absurdly cool to an extent. Like at the end of the day, it's, there is a journalistic element of you're the first word on, you know, events big and small that you're covering because it's live and it's cool that, you know, it's had that effect. I mean, you know, talking with Danny about um, some of those sort of tactical mental gymnastics that he's gone through that stuff is is the kind of stuff of dreams when you do these calls um bob lilly at pittsburgh talking about the 2015 championship which was the first pro soccer match i called on the men's side i had done some nwsl before that um but you know first with a big truck production it was a really big game for me and two years ago, talking for an hour about that one game was was really amazing. Like, you know, understanding all the machinations that happened behind the curtain that I was totally unaware of in a game that meant so much to me. And I had no idea um, that that's that's that was one of those things that, that stood out. But it's it's too many to count. I mean, if I do. If I do 250 games this year and about 150 or soccer matches on television, I'm going to guess I'm probably doing about 300 coach calls times 30 minutes. It's 150 hours. And there's all these amazing little, little experiences that have come out and let's call it a thousand hours of interviewing coaches that it's almost impossible to pick one. Switching gears a little bit, you've kind of done this broadcasting thing in a variety of formats and variety of leagues and all of that i was curious do you have in a perfect world kind of whether it's you know tv no tv just a a kind of perfect setup and way you would because you've done it so many different ways do you have again kind of the the favorite child conversation do you do you have one (laughs) sort of i guess medium of broadcast that you prefer yeah, uh, what well, uh, you want to be my agent because I think I just got a call about that, uh, or we're just chatting about that. It's it's difficult because so much of what I do leads forward. When you do SEC Network College Soccer, 
those players graduate and go to the NWSL and you've got this wealth of information on, you know, especially in non-conference, you see a bunch of teams for the first time and you're talking about their star players and those are the ones that go to the league. Um, so you're, you, you almost get to know these players from 18 to 30, whatever, when they ultimately choose to hang them up. And I've started to get to the point where I'm seeing the full turnover to that point. Like I'm seeing players come into the league and leave the league. And that's, uh, kind of making me feel a little bit older than I'd probably like, but, um, I, I, I do radio for Westwood one. And it's such a thrilling experience for me to do college football and, you know, an NFL game last year and hopefully more to come. But, you know, it's you you have to explain everything. You have to make it visible to everybody who can't see. And there's something really thrilling about that. And, um, you know, the level of games we're calling and the excitement around them, that that's really fun. Um, you know, the TV side, you know, even just going back over the last couple of months, you know, I feel like I'm talking too much and that's going to be a cognitive sort of thing for me in these next, you know, couple of weeks. Hey, let's dial that back. And I haven't perfected anything. I'm not even close to, to feeling like I've mastered anything. Um, as many times as I've done this, I still feel like there's holes in my game and things that I don't do all that well. Um, so I'm not ready to like push myself into one sport. I don't want to push myself into one medium because right now I'm enjoying the variety of it, but I'm also enjoying the gradual attempt to get better at each of them in equal measure at the same time. And it, maybe it's bad for my head that I'm going nonstop and I don't have an off season anymore, um, which is great. But also it's, it's kind of that blessing and a curse. You never really exhale because you're always on to the next thing. But, you know, perfect world. Am I going to have a role in, in football? Am I going to have a role in soccer? Am I going to have a role in basketball? Am I going to have a role in a stick and ball sport? Like, I hope I have all of them. I just hope that, you know, they're maybe a, a little less often um, and maybe just a, a little more siloed into, you know, specific areas where I can just watch three leagues instead of five at a time or six at a time. Cause that's, that's where you really um, ex- expend the most energy or the most sort of mental uh, effort. How do you feel like you have improved as a broadcaster? I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. This is a question I wanted to ask. I'm sure you could go on and on about, you know, from the very beginning, but just <laughs> getting, getting these reps consistently going week to week and, having such a quick turnaround where if you feel like one game doesn't go particularly well, you're kind of there the next day to get another chance at it. Looking back on however long, however far back you want to go, where do you feel like you have, have improved or kind of what do you are most grateful for in terms of kind of where you feel like you're at now when you get ready for a broadcast? Yeah. I I mean, there's an element of working smarter, not harder and recognizing what you're going to use and what you're not. So from a preparation standpoint, you know, getting a better grip on, you know, what I'm going to use and being okay if things I've found don't get used. Um, that That's sort of an ongoing process. And, you know, first NFL game on, on radio for Westwood One last year, uh, I had just mountains of stuff and things that I really wanted to get in. And by the time you get to the end of it, it moves so fast 
Um, it's only three hours. You're calling the game in front of you. And if you're caught looking at your notes, you're missing, you know, everything else around you. So I could have gone in there with 15% of what I use. I still only would have used 20% of that. So I, I, um, there's a, a work smarter, not harder element to the prep side. As far as on air, um, Still don't love my on-camera presence. I've worked at that for seven years. I, I've, I feel like I've gotten a lot better expressing personality because when you're young, you want it to be perfect. That doesn't necessarily make it a great show. It can sound robotic. It can sound, um, you know, I've, I've sort of transitioned to if, if we're having fun, I, I hope other people are having fun by proxy. Um, and that's sort of been a, a guiding light to this. We, we did an open uh, in NWSL a month and a half ago where we dropped, I think it was nine Taylor Swift references into the open because we just all got a kick at it. And uh, I, I don't know. We all thought it was kind of funny. And it wasn't that we were trying to dilute the game or dilute the show. Like they all made sense within where they were used. It was just kind of like, I don't know, let's let's do something a little different here. And we, we, we enjoyed it. Like it, it can become monotonous um, in a 24 game season or in a 34 game season um, or having watched for a number of years. So just trying to find something where we subtly tried to have fun with some viewers and some people picked up on it. And I imagine most of them probably weren't listening closely enough to notice, like, you know, I, I thought that was a lot of fun. Um, so trying to imprint, my own style and the way I, I want to call a game into it is something that I think about a lot. And then, you know, the, the toughest part about this gig is um, announcers will talk a lot about a player's confidence. Uh, you know, a guy who's hitting 100 over a month, a guy who hasn't scored in five games, but had the chances, you know, a guy who's shooting 10% from three, like we talk about confidence and as someone who basically played with live sort of ammo from day one of his broadcast career, which um, again is a blessing, like it's, it, it's, it's difficult when you, when you recognize what everyone else puts into a show and you don't feel you lived up to your end of the bargain. And I'm, let's call this eight years out of college and, you know, I did Angel City in Chicago, uh, in L.A. Uh, last week. And I walked into the truck and looked at everyone and just said, man, I sucked. I, I didn't like how, how I covered the Sydney LaRue comeback goal, which ended up going viral. And I, I couldn't avoid it. And I turned off social for a day or something and tried to ignore it. Um, you know, like that, that can hit at you in a way where didn't sleep very well that night. You know, you've got a six hour, seven hour travel day back to the East coast the next day. Thought a lot about that the next day. Just didn't, you know, I made a couple rookie mistakes that I don't usually make. And I'm going, man, that's, that's a poor effort. And they spent a lot of money and a lot of people spent a lot of time to do that at a high level and it, it can shake your confidence. And so you talk about, you know, confidence in a broadcast and it, you know, that happens with broadcasters too. It's, 
it's not like I was unprepared the next day. And then I go out, you know, for open cup and get a, you know, goal that went equally, if not more so viral than the LaRue goal. And I, I thought I got that one pretty good. So it's, it's sort of this trying to be more level, trying to understand that um, you're not going to love everything you do. You're not going to love every call you make. Um, and being willing to, to deal with that is that that's going to be a forever thing. And I, I've talked to other announcers that do much bigger events than me that, you know, concede that they sort of have that too. Um, you know, some of which I, I really idolize and they, they also sort of have those feelings. So I, I imagine it won't go away, but like, those are things I try and get better at. I try and, um, be more clean, uh, talk less to get the same amount of execution um, in a broadcast, um, and then just you know try and be more level and and you know keep my confidence in a place and keep my head in a place where or, you know game to game I don't necessarily let it affect each game and that you know when I'm when I'm confident at my best I carry that forward longer and streak with that longer well thank you for sharing all of that to me all that says is you're human and you care so <laughs> i appreciate that as a as a viewer and yeah, i feel like it's just just human nature no matter yeah whether you're an athlete commentator in the business world whatever that they're, they're we we have a hard time as humans letting things go sometimes mm-hmm. the final thing i wanted to ask before we start wrapping up is You've been around now MLS, USL, NWSL for a while. You've seen, you know, you talked about going back to the the Red Bulls and now Sasha Question is right there on (laughs) MLS 360 as, you know, a retired player providing his perspective on an Apple TV broadcast and all of those kind of things. Just what can you put into the perspective, the way that these leagues have grown from USL with the Open Cup runs and ESPN Plus to NWSL and Angel City, San Diego Wave, all the excitement as this league continues to grow to the fact that perhaps the greatest player ever is about to join Major League Soccer. It it just, looking back on where you started and where these leagues were and kind of the journey that you've been part of, what, can you put that into perspective and what does that part of this mean to you? Yeah, I, uh, it's funny because I can sort of think of my starting point in each of these and look at where we are now. So the NWSL, I started with them year two of existence in 2014. And there was a tweet Megan Rapino sent to Sky Blue, because I was working for them at the time, that said, hi, um, Megan Rapino here. Uh, didn't travel with the team, but there's a raindrop on your lens. And if, you know, it's been there for 10 minutes. And if you could please just wipe that off, that'd be great. And it was on YouTube. It was uh, a horse trailer like a, a small sort of like, like a mini U-Haul, you know, tuggable, you know, box they brought and set up a couple cameras and streamed to YouTube. And those highlights and those videos, I look back and I'm like, oh my God, you know, like we, we've come way, way forward from there. And I think people who don't, necessarily understand the industry don't recognize how seismic necessarily that shift has been because I I think we all want it um, to keep improving and, and, and get substantially better but you know the steps in 
you know, those nine years, it is, it is wild to me having been there before and recognizing the sophistication of what we do now with USL. The first game they ever put on ESPN network was our 2015 final on ESPN three. Um, the, the games before that it's, it is night and day, our graphics package, the level of cameras that are used, the expectations for, um, for, for broadcast. A lot of venues didn't have a camera at halfway. It would be left or right of halfway. Um, you know, the, the baseball stadiums, uh, you know, we only have a couple left, thankfully, and hopefully those are on the way out um, where they just weren't conducive to, to playing the game very well um, or broadcasting very well um the next year we had 20 games i think on espn3 and the rest were still on youtube and then we got into espn plus and now we're on tv in almost every market uh in the league there's only a couple that don't have a bally sports or a local tv channel picking them up so that's that's unbelievable um and with mls when you when you bring in a partner like Apple and you look at what they did with MLB, like the expectation day one was for them to do this at a Premier League level. And while there were a number of, you know, I worked with Yes Network, you know, they viewed it as, you know, if it's on our air, it's going to be to our standard. There were a number of teams where it didn't always feel like that was the case. Um, and now, I mean, they look perfect. You see everything. Um, the amount of money they've poured into it um, is commensurate with the amount of money that they they received. They upped their game by a proper sort of level to, to make it make sense. So um, going from, yeah, the, the, the first touch on each of these leagues, and MLS obviously had a 15, 20-year head start on the others, uh, to where we are now, it's when I left school, I didn't know if there was a route in USL or NWSL to carve out a career as a commentator, as a player. Um, I don't necessarily feel that way anymore. And that's that's a massive step for for soccer in this country that it can support growing multiple leagues at once and raising its level as, as quickly as they have. It's not quick enough for anybody. We all want to be faster, but, you know, if you look from a macro perspective, um, you know, 15 years in major league baseball teams were still barnstorming during the off season to make money. Um, hopefully we're going to, you know, eclipse that substantially faster. Um, it's, it's exciting, man. It is, it is, you know, I got in at just the right time to sort of see this thing explode. It's amazing. Final three questions I like to ask everyone. First, do you have a favorite moment, memory, highlight, specifically soccer related from your broadcasting career so far that or, or a couple that kind of stand out to you? Yeah, uh, 2017 Gold Cup, uh, we were traveling for those games. And to call a game at the Rose Bowl with Mexico and Jamaica, and I think there were probably 50,000 or 60,000 people there. And then to have Kamar Lawrence hit this wild free kick in either the 90th minute or stoppage time, very end of the game, to upset Jamaica, or, or rather upset Mexico. Um, 
for Kamar Lawrence to put Jamaica on his shoulders like that and just you could hear a pin drop in that stadium after that goal. Like it, it was just shocking. Um, and to have my call, you know, sort of circulate with that. I, I thought I nailed that call. I thought I nailed that moment and I thought I made that moment feel bigger. And it was sort of the broadcast of record in the Caribbean. And that, that stuff is really cool to me to be able to have sort of one of those seminal moments for a country's, experience in this sport like it's it's very difficult for me to to top that uh seattle winning champions league final and knowing what it meant to uh mls and the u.s soccer on the whole um that that was really pretty spectacular uh calling the u.s winning nations league on the world feed um is up there um for sure um you know, there's a handful of USL games and college soccer matches and NWSL games. You know, the, 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 the Challenge Cup in 2020, that whole month is a blur, but I tie it together as a really beautiful blur um, with everything that was going on. USL initially coming back with no fans and then, you know, seeing fans come back into the fold is something I won't forget. The, the first game in Louisville with fans with the new stadium they built after covid um, really, really hit me. That was really special. Uh, the, the 2018 USL final, you know, there, there are posters in Louisville, um, with, with my call written on them. And I, I, they're like a reminder every time 2017, um, that, that, that's like, it's really hard to, to top stuff like that, where it feels like, um, you played some really small role in, elevating a moment that was already great or meeting a moment that was great. Like it's, it's, it's hard to do that. Um, so yeah, that was way more than he asked for. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. And second, how do you feel like the sport of soccer has shaped you as a person? I'm curious for your answer on this because it's not necessarily your, obviously your professional athletic journey, but, how do you feel like your involvement with the sport has impacted you just as the person you are today? Yeah. Supporter culture in soccer has its pitfalls for sure. And I've seen, you know, a, a fair amount of negativity that can come from fans toward players, towards announcers, but the overarching, um, the idea of, of, community that's fostered there and being taken in by sort of a number of different fan bases in, in my career. Um, it's, it's shown me a lot. It's, it's shown me how to stand shoulder to shoulder with people in really trying circumstances. Um, it's shown me how to, how to support, you know, positively, um, even in tough times. Um, you know, that's something where all these all these sports have their unique nuances, but I, I don't know anything in another sport quite, you know, maybe it's it's more individualistic or I, I it's tough to describe, but in soccer you you band together as a community in support as opposed to um, in a lot of cases supporting individually. Um 
it, it's not to say that you have to sing at a game to be, you know, supporting a team. Um, I've seen Bengals fans in, in my five years there almost feel like a supporter culture. Um, but yeah, the, the supporter culture and the idea of building a team where the goal is to be greater than the sum of your parts on the field. Um, and, you know, people talk about culture and it's very cliche until it's not. Um, that stuff really stands out to me. How, how, how can I be a better teammate? Um, so I would say on the field, it's, it's sort of that, um, you know, watching a culture dominate games and provide long stretches of dominance um, has really affected me. And off the field, yeah, it's seeing that that community and support come together, and it, I, I suppose in in a similar way, be greater than the sum of its parts. Very well said. And my last question, I kind of leave this one open ended. What does your soccer story mean to you? Um, my soccer story is my livelihood. Um. So it's almost impossible to almost impossible to pull it apart. Um, it's been the central focus of my life for close to a decade now. And I don't necessarily totally understand who I am without some element of that in my life at all times. Um, so you could say it's in some ways really entered the DNA of my own existence, my soccer story. And if you had told me that when I was 14, I'd probably be pretty shocked. Uh, but a lot of my closest friends and people that I consider family uh, at this point um, came from that journey um, again, my, my livelihood is, has been connected to it and is, is given, you know, me and, and my wife, a, a lot of blessings. Um, you know, it's, it, it's a central tenant of, of my life. So I don't know if you could ask for very much more than that. Very, very well said. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat, Mike. Really appreciate it. Pleasure's all mine, man. Thanks again to Mike for taking the time to chat. Be sure to subscribe to My Soccer Story wherever you listen to podcasts. The video version of each My Soccer Story episode is available on the Touchline Talk YouTube channel, and there is a written version at touchlinetalk.substack.com, so be sure to check those out as well. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.